Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a really exciting episode for you today for a few reasons. First of all, we have a very special guest here. We have Dr. Shravani Durbakala, who is one of our chronic pain docs here at Hopkins. She's fantastic, and we're going to do a topic that's a little um, different, but I think should be fascinating. We're going to talk about the opioid crisis in the United States and really delve into some of what's going on with that uh, from the perspective of a chronic pain physician. So, Shravani, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jed. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. And the other special thing about the episode today is that this week's episode will also be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. As many of you probably know, Anesthesiology News is the independent monthly newspaper for anesthesiologists. It's the one that you get in your um, in your mailbox all the time, uh, and you kind of wonder where it came from, but you find really interesting stories in it. And it turns out that they also have a fantastic website, as I said, anesthesiologynews.com. You can find their archives as well as multimedia and web-exclusive content at their site. And again, that's anesthesiologynews.com. And they, today, are going to be featuring our episode in ACRAC. So go check it out both to see how, how they do with our episode over there, but also to check out their content because it's really well-done stuff and you can learn a lot from them. So again, anesthesiologynews.com. All right, let's dive in to our show. Uh, so, Shravani, let me start, uh, you know, we just take for granted maybe that everybody knows what the opioid crisis is, but we have listeners in other countries and they may or may not know, what, at least in this country, what we mean when we say the opioid crisis. So why don't we just start basic? What is the opioid crisis? So, Jed, we're referring to the current state of prescription drug and heroin abuse in the United States right now. So drug overdose is a leading cause of accidental death, and most of these deaths are unintentional. So many of us know the singer-songwriter Prince, who got addicted to opioids, fentanyl specifically, and um, this was after orthopedic surgery for his hip, and he accidentally overdosed. His story parallels the story of many Americans. Absolutely. I, you know, and I think this is something patients are asking about all the time when they come in for surgery. They're worried about it. They want to know what's going to happen if they take opioids. Are they going to need them and, and are they going to get addicted? So we're going to talk about all of that. And I think this will be great. But, you know, it, I do feel like I didn't hear as much about it in the popular press until recently. So why is this becoming such an important public health issue right now? Yeah, so great question. I'll give you some statistics to just make the magnitude of this issue palpable for everybody. So the CDC estimates that 91 Americans die daily from opioids. And in 2016, drug overdose actually killed more Americans in one year than Vietnam and Iraq combined. So that's, you know, quite significant. Wow. Yeah, $78.5 billion is the annual public burden due to this problem. So that's huge, uh, both in terms of mortality and in terms of cost. So you mentioned the CDC data. Uh, what does that data really tell us? Um, so the CDC data, you know, anybody can find that online on the CDC website. Um, but they do kind of total the deaths for every year due to drug overdose and then specifically due to opioid overdose. So um, January 2017, we had, you know, over 50,000 deaths from opioids, which is a 36% increase from 2016. So despite all of this, despite the growing media coverage, despite the federal government efforts, we're not where we need to be and the death tolls are going up and up. And we will post that link to the CDC data as well as some other references um, for this episode on the show notes. So if anyone wants to access them when you get back from your run where you're listening to this, you can access them there. So thanks, Shravani, for providing them. 
So, Shravani, the, uh, you know, I think when people think of these medications, the scariest one or the ones we hear most about, the one that we see in movies and, and documentaries is heroin. So is that where most of these deaths are coming from? So interestingly, no, it's not. And I, I definitely, you know, could see why everyone would think that. The CDC actually categorizes opioids into four categories. So heroin is the first, the second being natural and semi-synthetic opioids. So this is Percocet, um, hydrocodone, the things that people are generally prescribing in an office setting. Uh, the third is methadone. And the fourth is synthetic opioids, excluding methadone. So now we're talking about fentanyl and tramadol in that fourth category. Interestingly, it's the fourth category, fentanyl and tramadol, that has the most number of deaths. And those number of deaths have actually doubled since January 2016 to 2017, from 10 to 20,000. Um, heroin is alongside of um, prescription opioids, and those come in around 15 and 14,000. And why do you think we've seen such a jump in that fourth category? What, what has happened? Yeah, that's a great question, especially because tramadol we kind of think of as a weak opioid muagnist. So the reason is, if you read the paper, they essentially say that they think the increases in fentanyl are contributing, and generally they're talking about illicit fentanyl. Okay, so this is fentanyl that is uh, being diverted out into the public. Exactly. And what about regionally? Uh, is this happening kind of equally across the country, or are there regional differences we should note? There are regional differences. Um, the state of Delaware had the biggest increase in deaths, and then that was followed by the state of Maryland, second biggest increase, um, which is very pertinent as a chronic pain doc here in Baltimore, obviously. Absolutely. So this is something really kind of unfolding in, in our backyard. Yes. And how did the crisis unfold? What's the little history behind what's been going on? Yeah, so early in the 1990s, prescription opioids were actually primarily used for acute pain, cancer pain. Um, studies then started to surface showing inadequate treatment of chronic non-cancer pain by physicians, and that was when there was a big push by patient adv advocacy groups, um, professional physician associations, and even the federal government to take patients' pain a lot more seriously. Um, the concept of pain as a fifth vital sign then came about, was endorsed by the VA hospital system in the 1990s and eventually became a joint commission standard in 2001. So we as a country essentially went from prescribing very few painkillers in the 50s and 60s to prescribing 83% of the world's oxycodone and 98% of the world's hydrocodone by 2010. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. So what about, you know, it's interesting, when we think about uh, pain, it's such a difficult vital sign to measure, right? I mean, is it, you know, you think about heart rate, you look on the monitor, you know what someone's heart rate is, but pain is, is subjective. It's what someone tells you it is. Um, and is that still considered, you said it became a Joint Commission standard in 2001, and we still are required to be measuring that on every patient by the Joint Commission? So the American Medical Association has kind of come back on this a little bit, and now they're saying, you know, it's, it's not pain as the fifth vital sign is not that great of an idea because it's pushing physicians to over-prescribe opioids. It's pushing them to have this pressure that's unnecessary and maybe inappropriately prescribed in some situations. So the Joint Commission standard may still be there, but the American Medical Association is pulling back on that. Okay. So there's maybe a little debate on that, but, you know, certainly, and don't, I don't want anyone out there to get me wrong, very important to treat patients' pain. Uh, the question is, are we doing it the right way and are we assessing it in a way that is best for patients? So what about pharmaceutical companies? What role have the pharmaceutical companies played in kind of this, the things that have led up to this crisis? So I want to focus in here on Purdue Pharmaceuticals. Um, so in 1996, they were aggressively marketing OxyContin. Um, they said, you know, it's not going to cause addiction. Um, 
And the FDA, incredibly, they actually supported this. So they said, you know, this drug is going to be absorbed slowly. There probably isn't going to be an immediate rush. So they allowed Purdue Pharmaceuticals to make this claim. So they then launched promotional videos for doctors with prominent pain specialists to ease fears about prescription opioids leading to addiction, saying, hey, less than 1% of patients are going to become addicted. So did it work? So interestingly, yeah, it did. Um, Physicians typically have about nine hours of pain education in medical school, so it's not surprised that they were easily swayed by these ads. Um, In 2001, OxyContin was grossing $1 billion of sales, and it was the most frequently prescribed brand-name medication at that point. Wow. Yeah. And so OxyContin, huge sales, other prescription drugs, huge sales, and then this led to increasing abuse. Yeah, it did. So reports from overdose and death from these prescription drugs, and particularly from OxyContin, started to surface. By 2002, there were 2.8 million people who were admitting using OxyContin for non-medical purposes, and that's a huge jump from previously. In 1999, we were around 400,000 people. Um, Purdue Pharmaceuticals was investigated, um, and they eventually had to pay out $600 million in fines and settlements for uh, fraudulent marketing. Interesting. Now, is there is the thought that these medications are being prescribed, and then people who are who have legitimate prescriptions are deciding to sell them? Is that how they're getting on the street, or is it that uh, physicians are prescribing them fraudulently? So, that's a good question. There may be a lot of combined factors. So, physicians may be prescribing them inappropriately, which we'll kind of get into a little bit later. Um, but in addition, sometimes. Patients are kind of selling them or giving them to family members or to other people who wouldn't normally have access to these drugs. So, um, you know, we'll get into a few studies later that look at that, but I think there's a, a combined thing going on here. Okay, interesting. So, you know, it's interesting that we call it a crisis or an opioid epidemic, opioid crisis. When did we start calling it that? When did it become a crisis, at least in popular lingo? Yeah, so between 1999 and 2010, Um, We saw overdose death rates, sales, and substance use disorder treatment admissions kind of increasing in parallel, particularly in relation to these prescription pain relievers. Um, So then in 2010, about the White House started calling this a crisis. Um, There was warnings from the Office of National Drug Control Policy, hey, these prescription opioids are going to lead to heroin addiction. And the White House, they took it seriously. They called for prescriber education at that point and more uh, prescription drug monitoring. Okay. So kind of really since 2010, we've been referring to this as a crisis. And what was the relationship between, again, we talked a little about heroin and how it's actually, you know, less heroin in terms of the increase and more other illicit drugs. Uh, But what is the relationship between heroin abuse and prescription drug abuse? So three out of every four new heroin users actually started out with prescription painkillers. So that's huge. Um, The switch to heroin, when interviewed, they say it's due to increased availability, lower prices, and increased purity. So you could think of prescription drugs essentially as a gateway in some ways to heroin usage. Um, It's interesting because Mexican drug cartels, they recognized this relationship way sooner than we did, right? So they started setting up shop in neighborhoods where there were a lot of opioid abusers. So oftentimes this was high-profile neighborhoods where there were people using these pills. And according to data we have now from the DEA, amount of heroin seized each year into the um, United States was it was approximately about 500 kilograms between 2000 and 2008, and it 
quadrupled by 2013. So they really did recognize and capitalize on this relationship. Interesting. So the idea is that you start taking uh, opiate pills either because they were prescribed or because you're getting them illicitly, and then you actually end up finding it's easier or maybe more, more, you get more of a high or something, but you end up switching to heroin and maybe, maybe more and more we'll start seeing people switching to fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. So when we think of the population at risk, who is at the highest risk for this kind of addiction? So a lot of it is genetic. So they're saying about 50% is genetic. So family history is a really important question for any physicians who are prescribing these medications. Um, Other things, you know, age and exposure. So younger people are at higher risk. People with major depression, people who are already on psychotropic medications. Um, Non-Hispanic whites uh, and American Indian or Alaskan natives were actually found to have the highest overdose rates, and men were more likely to die from overdose, but those um, gender gaps are quickly closing. Interesting. So in terms of genetics, what we really would want to know is we want to ask patients if they have a family member who's had a, a problem with addiction. Yes. So I ask that every single day for every patient that I see in the chronic pain setting. It's part of our template actually here at Hopkins. So it gives me a really good idea um, about is this a patient I should consider giving these drugs to or continuing these drugs for, or is this somebody who's really at high risk? Mm -hmm. So you're a chronic pain physician. What kind of challenges do you face in an environment where we're in this crisis? Yeah, so a lot. So, you know, these Patients come into you and they have pain. They have legitimate pain. They have MRIs with findings that tell me, yes, you have pain. But they're on drugs that we don't have good evidence for. So we have this total lack of good evidence supporting opioids in non-cancer pain, such as chronic low back pain. Um, No study at all looking at long-term outcomes, so we're talking a year or more, related to pain, function, or quality of life that's actually prescribing prescription opioids versus placebo or some kind of non-opioid therapy. So most of the trials we have that are placebo-controlled randomized trials are evaluating very short durations, so 12 weeks or less, which is not really consistent with the way that they're being prescribed. Um, The other problem is we see patients who are on them that are poor candidates, so they have a family history or they're young or, you know, it just doesn't make sense for them to be on these drugs. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not a chronic pain doctor, but I completely hear you that it must be really difficult. Again, we talked earlier about how pain is, is subjective. You can't, you can't, you know, put someone on a monitor and tell if they actually have pain. If they say they have pain, then they have pain. And so it must be really challenging to kind of figure out what the best way to, to treat these people are who, have, who are coming in saying they have chronic pain and who, who think opiates are the right treatment for them. So how do you screen people? Are there tools you can use to kind of screen who should and who should not get opiates? Definitely. So we do have some tools. The SOAP-R is a popular one, which is the screener and opioid assessment for patients with pain. Uh, Opioid risk tool, brief brief risk interview, these are other ones. But um, the problem is we actually have very few studies with very serious limitations, actually, to evaluate the diagnostic accuracy or real likelihood of these tools predicting opioid abuse. So while we have these tools, and we always administer the SOAP-R in our clinic, as well as the stop bang, which is for sleep apnea. Um, I don't really rely solely on them. They can be very helpful and they can be a guide, but they're not an end-all be-all. Great. So I think a lot of physicians really care about this. We see this as part of our job, whether we're in chronic pain or not. And certainly 
I would imagine that the vast majority of physicians do not want to be contributing to this crisis. So what is your advice for physicians who think they want to do their part to combat this crisis? Definitely. So educate, educate, educate. Explain the risks to your patients. So common side effects, you know, most of us know this, but I'll just go over constipation, nausea, vomiting, confusion, physical dependence, tolerance, withdrawal. There's evidence for dose-dependent increased risks of addiction and overdose, cardiovascular events, endocrine dysfunction, road trauma, and fractures. The other thing I really do talk about with patients is opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Now, I don't get into all the nitty-gritty of this topic with them because they wouldn't understand, but I do explain to them that, you know, hey, these drugs are causing your pain processing systems by your brain and your spinal cord to be hyper-excitable, and they're just amplifying all the pain signals that your body's receiving. And while you think that you're treating your pain, you're really creating a state that's going to cause you more pain, and you're going to want more drugs because you think you have more pain. And it's really just a downward spiral. And when I explain that to them, they really do respond well to that. That's great. You know, I think that's really key. People, uh, even a lot of physicians, I think, don't know about opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Uh, You know, they kind of feel like, you know, addiction is the only potential downside to long-term opiates. But the fact that your pain can actually get worse is a huge, huge deal that people need to know about. So what about um, physicians who say, okay, look, I'd love to cut down on the prescriptions, but I have patients in pain, so what can I do instead? Yeah, so this is a great question because I see this all the time. Um, so I get patients from primary care docs who are just don't know what to do with these patients. So they one thing is, you know, offer your adjuvants. So non-steroidals, acetaminophen, anticonvulsants, Lyrica, gabapentin, tricyclics, right, nortriptyline, amitriptyline, and SNRIs, duloxetine, has a fair amount of evidence. Um, just remember that when you're prescribing these drugs, they do have their own risks. So for instance, with NSAIDs, you got to be careful in terms of the GI tract, renal effects, cardiovascular effects. Um, when you're prescribing gabapentin, make sure you're looking at the renal dosing guidelines. Don't prescribe 900 TID for somebody who's in renal failure. Make sure you're looking at it and dosing appropriately. Um, and with SNRIs like duloxetine, uh, there have been some reports of hepatic issues. So just make sure their liver function is okay. Great. And so, you know, do you, would you recommend that um, these kind of, let's say a a physician, let's say even an anesthesiologist is seeing a patient in pre-op or post-op and looking at their med list and sees that they're on a bunch of opioids, would they, you know, want to recommend that they talk to a pain physician to try to kind of see if they can transition to some of these non-opiate medications? I think that's great. I think that would be an awesome way for anesthesiologists to combat this issue in a preoperative setting and say, hey, you know, you're, you're here for spine surgery because of chronic low back pain and you're on a whole bunch of opioid medications. And, you know, I don't know if this is really helping you. I'm not a chronic pain doc, but we have chronic pain docs here and maybe you should talk to your primary care doc about maybe, you know, switching to some adjuvants or adding some adjuvants or seeing a chronic pain doctor who's trained in this. Absolutely. What about non-pharmacologic interventions? What Was there any evidence for anything that works that, that are not medications? Yes. Yeah, so physical therapy and exercise actually has a fair amount of evidence. Patients don't believe you when you tell them that, but it's true. Um, and many patients come to me and say, hey, you know, I did physical therapy and I feel a lot better. Um, pain psychology, acupuncture, cognitive behavioral therapy, these are all things that we recommend. And then, of course, interventional therapy. So that is um, what we do in the pain clinic. Uh, so epidurals, nerve blocks, radiofrequency ablations. Um, there's a whole gamut of procedures all the way up to things like spinal cord stimulation and neuromodulation. Um, of note, though, these procedures are kind of getting harder to 
get covered by insurance. Interesting. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that given this idea that these could be opiate sparing. Why are they getting harder to cover? Exactly. And that's very frustrating as somebody who wants to get people off of these medications. Um, there are some studies that have come out. On one really important one that I want to focus on is the MINT randomized con- clinical trials, recently published in JAMA. Claiming- and that's MINT, M-I-N-T? Correct. Okay. Um, claiming that lumbar radiofrequency ablation for the medial branch is not effective. Um, so we do lumbar radiofrequency all the time, and I actually personally have seen many patients who say, this is great, this works for me, I don't have facet-mediated pain, which for anyone who doesn't know would be mostly non-radicular pain due to arthritis. Um, there were many flaws in the methodology of this study. First of all, it wasn't blinded. Um, the way that they did the procedure was questionable. So for radio frequency to really work, you should have the needle oriented in a specific way, and it wasn't oriented in that way. Um, and there were other issues with the way that they decided on which procedures to do. And, you know, there were definitely some issues with the study. Regardless, it's prompted a lot of debate, and it's questionable at this point if lumbar RFA will continue to be reimbursed. For now, it looks like we're okay, at least in the state of Maryland, but um, going forward, it is questionable. Okay. Well, we'll have to follow that. So tell me, is there ever a time when we should be using opiates in, in chronic pain? If you, you know, give us a little guideline. When should opiates, if at all, be started or continued for chronic pain? Well, it's certainly not first-line therapy. Um, if you're going to prescribe them, I would recommend using the CDC guidelines. Uh, so they say very clearly, only if expected risks for both pain and function are anticipated to outweigh risks, and it should be combined with non-pharmacological therapy and adjuvants. So really, it's a risk-benefit individual patient assessment, and it should never be used alone or as the first step. If you are going to use them, you need to do it properly. So opioid contracts should be in place. Urine drug screens should be done before starting therapy and at least annually. I will say that, you know, whenever I've had to continue these medications, it's more than annually that I'm doing urine drug screens. Um, you want to check the, the uh, prescription drug monitoring programs. They say every three months in the guidelines. I check it probably every time that I refill a script. Um, and then you want to consider co-prescriptions of naloxone. Uh, to keep these patients safe in case something does happen. Of course, you want to start with the short-acting medications first at the lowest effective dosage. Don't prescribe it with benzos. Um, The evidence is there for increased risk of fatal overdose when prescribed with benzodiazepines. And And if you have to taper them down, you just have to do that gradually. So you want to remember that. And then carefully reassess this risk-benefit ratio when increasing to greater than 50 morphine milligram milliequivalents per day. Avoid increasing greater than 90. And then revisit this conversation. So risk-benefit conversation needs to happen every three months. That's great. All right. So let me ask you a couple questions. So you mentioned prescription drug monitoring programs, which should be checked at least uh, every three months. Yes. And that would be, uh, tell me if I'm right, this is to make sure that they're not getting opiates from someone else and from you. So not just that. So yes, absolutely. I can see who's prescribing them, how they're filling them, where they're filling them. But Also, if I'm prescribing an opioid and then it's not coming up in the urine drug screen, then that prompts a question for me, where are those drugs going? So if you're running out too quickly, are they being sold? Are they um, being given to family members or friends or, you know, what's happening? So that's a really great way to find out if a patient is maybe exhibiting high-risk behaviors. Great. All right. So that makes a lot of sense. And then as you said, Sometimes patients may have coexisting anxiety disorders. They may be on benzodiazepines uh, like midazolam or more likely um, uh, lorazepam. 
and uh, those are medications that you would need to be very careful tapering, but like you said, you really would like to taper them so you're not giving a whole lot of both. Yes, and also, you know, we get a lot of patients, not just for anxiety, but they come in from spine surgery, and they're using these as muscle relaxants, so diazepam, we see it all the time, you know, and patients are like, oh, well, it's my muscle relaxant, you can't take that off, and you have to say, well, you're on opioids, and you're on a muscle relaxant, but we have other muscle relaxants that are not going to put you at this risk, so then you want to sort of get into that conversation. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Now, what about if you see a patient and they've been seeing other doctors first, and when they come to see you, you think, wow, they're actually inappropriately receiving the opioids that they're on. What do you do? How do you help them get onto a better regimen? Yeah, well, I most of the time do see patients that I think are receiving opioids, unfortunately, inappropriately. Um, And I down titrate. So, you know, take them down and Use your resources. So if you have a pain psychologist, if you have addiction services at the hospital, um, an inpatient treatment program. So let's be real, though. So it's not easy to get patients into these programs. Um, There's not enough beds and there's long waits. And those waits can be long enough that it could be the difference between an addict being alive and overdosing. So that's a big problem. And we really have to get um, more facilities for these people to get in and get help. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, people out there, I'm sure, have heard about, uh, for sure, methadone, right? People who maybe are recovering heroin addicts who are on methadone, other maybe newer medications like Suboxone. Uh, Tell me more about those. Yeah, so Suboxone or methadone therapy is always used in combination with behavioral therapies, of course. Suboxone is buprenorphine plus naloxone. Uh, It's a great option for patients, but it's difficult to find a provider many times. So, you know, each provider can... First of all, they have to be certified to give out this medication. And second, they're restricted to 100 patients for the first year. Second year, now they can prescribe up to 275, but they actually have to apply to increase their patient limits. Um, And you can see how the supply-demand is just there are way too many patients that need this help, and there's not enough people who can provide it to them. Uh, Methadone maintenance therapy, you know, there are methadone clinics available, but the idea behind Suboxone was let's take the stigma out of this. Let's allow these addicts to just go to their primary care doctor um, where someone's getting treated for diabetes next door or go to their pain physician or go somewhere where they don't have to deal with the stigma of going to a methadone clinic. Uh, For pregnant women, I will say with opioid use disorder, I always suggest that they go and get help with Suboxone or methadone because there is evidence that there's improved maternal outcomes. All right. So a couple questions. Suboxone, just so everyone is clear, you said it's buprenorphine and naloxone. And then the reason to include the naloxone is that if you take the pill, uh, the naloxone has no effect. But if you crush it and inject it, the naloxone will essentially prevent you from getting the highs. Yes, that's exactly right. Yep. Okay. And then methadone. Why does methadone require its own special clinic? Well, Physicians can prescribe it for pain, um, most physicians, any physician really, um, but in order to prescribe it for addiction, it's just a different training process and dealing with addicts is different. Um, the doses that you use are different and methadone has to be monitored, so you have to be monitoring cardiac things and so for that reason, you have to be getting it at clinics. Great. So that's one of the advantages of Suboxone. So unlike methadone, it doesn't have the same QT prolongation, like you said, so we don't necessarily need the cardiac monitoring. So safer just to go through your primary care doctor. Yes. All right. So where are patients getting their opioids from? Are they getting them all from chronic pain doctors like you or from other physicians? So 
Primary care docs are prescribing about 50% of these opioid medications, but specialists are, you know, a big part of this crisis too. So among specialists, pain medicine followed by surgery, followed by physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, we are prescribing a lot of opioids as well. And so do we think that they're overprescribed by specialists? Good question. So there was a recent journal um, article, a JAMA surgery article actually, that looked at six studies, 810 unique patients who underwent orthopedic, thoracic, obstetric, and general surgery procedures. Um, 67 to 92% of these patients actually reported unused opioids. So, you know, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. So if these are not being used, then what is happening to them? You know, they're available for non-medical use. Are they causing injuries? Are they causing deaths? What is happening to these medications? Interesting. And so what about um, opiates in the kind of acute setting after surgery? Because I think a lot of people out there, especially our anesthesiologists out there, you know, are thinking, do I need to change if all I do is treat patients in the operating room and in the PACU or maybe even in the ICU, you know, do I need to change my practices? How, how does this whole crisis relate to, if at all, treating patients in the immediate post-op period? Yeah, that is a great question. So the CDC kind of looked at this too. So their morbidity mortality weekly report on March 17th, 2017, if anybody wants to look this up, um, they focus in on a retrospective study of 1.2 million opioid-naive cancer-free adults. And they look at the characteristics of the initial prescription episodes and the likelihood of long-term abuse in the United States. And that was for what years? 2006 to 2015. Okay, so about 10 years. And what did they find? So one in three-year probabilities they looked at of chronic opioid use. Um, the likelihood increased with several things, so we'll go through them. The first thing, each additional day of medication supplied starting with day three increased the likelihood. So the sharpest increases in chronic use were actually day after days five and day 31 on therapy. So this is interesting. So we were about 6% likelihood of chronic use at day one, 13.5% at day eight, and 30% at 31 days. Um, the other thing they saw was anybody who got a second prescription or a refill was at higher risk. So one out of every seven people who received a second prescription were on opioids at one year. Initial scripts that were 10 or 30 day supplies were higher risk. And then not surprisingly, anybody who was initiated with long acting opioids. So 27.3% of those patients at one year and 20% at three years. We're still on opiates. Exactly. Now, so it sounds like at least in the first one to three days, it's very low likelihood, right? Yes. So if somebody comes out post-op, like almost everyone, they get some fentanyl in the, in the PACU, they're on you know, IV opiates and then maybe transitioning to some POs for the first two to three days, that re is really low likelihood of, of becoming addicted to opioids. Yeah, it is. Um, it's pretty low, like I said, up until day three and really, really peaking, starting to peak at day five. Okay. So we can at least reassure patients that it's, it's you know, it's fairly safe to get some opiates initially post-op. Now, uh, I think what's interesting is let's say that someone says, you know, look, I... I'm worried about addiction. Maybe I've even got some family history of addiction. And they come to you, you're their anesthesiologist, you're taking them to the OR, and they say, I don't want to get any opiates. None. Not intra-op, not post-op. Is that even possible? Yes. So this is a great question, very relevant question, um, but also complicated in the sense that it depends on the surgery and it depends on the patient. So if you're doing an open AAA, um, the likelihood of us doing opioid-free surgery is, is pretty low. We're not there yet. 
but we are there for certain other procedures. Um, so we do have ERAS protocols that have been implemented that focus on multimodal techniques and reduction of opioids. The best evidence we have is actually for colorectal procedures, but we are using them with breast cases, gyne cases, pediatric cases. So they're being used across the board. So the whole philosophy here is, um, you know, postoperatively, most providers are going to prescribe opioids. They just are for postoperative pain control. So why not just save those mu opioid receptors exclusively for this early postoperative rescue period, right? So protocols. We have ERS protocols. What do they actually incorporate? So we're talking about regional anesthetic techniques, so peripheral nerve blocks, neuraxial techniques, preventative analgesia, so acetaminophen, gabapentin, celecoxib in the preoperative area, ketamine, lidocaine infusions, IV magnesium, um, and then postoperative use of adjuvants, so IV acetaminophen, IV toradol until they can use PO adjuvants, and starting with tramadol before using other opioids. All right, so you know, it's certainly possible, it sounds like, to do an opioid-free anesthetic, especially if you have an epidural. Um, if you're using an ERAS protocol, there are ways to do it. Certainly, it's not all or nothing, so it doesn't have to be opioid-free or a ton of opiates. You can certainly, you know, try to minimize it with your adjuvants, as you said. And so we can reassure patients that we can minimize opiates as much as possible and maybe even uh, completely avoid them, depending on the surgery and whether we can use uh, some regional anesthesia as well. So... What about the amount of post-op opiate prescribed? Can we change with our ERAS protocols and with, let's say we do an opiate-free surgery on the anesthesia side, then will that help in the post-op period? So common sense and logic would tell you, yes, of course this should help. But we had a pretty startling study come out from UCLA, just published actually in Anesthesia and Analgesia in November. It was really the first study that I noticed of its kind. Um, and it was a historical prospective quality improvement study of a colorectal ERAS protocol that they had implemented. So ERAS intervention, not surprisingly, led to an increase in opioid-free anesthesia and multimodal analgesia, but there was no impact on discharge opioid prescribing practices. So patients were discharged with an opioid prescription, even if they had a combination of low discharge pain scores, no preoperative opioid use, and low morphine milligram equivalence consumption before discharge. So what's the issue here? The issue is that surgical teams need to change their prescribing patterns. Um, even if we're educating the attending surgeons, this education needs to trickle downstream, right? Because you know, for any of us who have done internships or residencies, we know that it's not the attendings who are prescribing, it's the nurse practitioners, the physician assistants, and the residents. And oftentimes it's not even the senior resident or the chief resident, it's the intern who's discharging the patient. So this education needs to go all the way down to the youngest person on the team. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think part of what's going on is people want patients to be comfortable. And so, you know, these junior residents or NPs, PAs are thinking, oh, you know, of course I'm going to give them an opiate prescription because I, I don't want them to be in pain. And maybe what we need to do is make sure that they're hearing this kind of stuff that you're talking about, that there are real downsides to that. It's not just for pain. It's also all the downsides, all the side effects, all the potential for hyperalgesia and everything that goes along with it. And if they know that, they may be less likely to prescribe it, especially when it's not needed. Definitely. Now, I want to go back a second. We talked a little about uh, the risk, if you get immediate post-op opiates, the risk of remaining on opiates long-term. But I, I also want to ask you about addiction. So, you know, what about if you get uh, intra-op opiates? So let's say that you get, you know, your fentanyl, your Dilaudid while you're asleep under anesthesia. Is that does that put you at any risk for opiate addiction? So there's no clear data indicating this. Um, 
Opioid intraoperatively does have the potential to cause postoperative hyperalgesia. So the currently reported incidence is about 3 to 8%. The most robust data that we have is for remifentanil infusions intraoperatively, causing increased postoperative pain and morphine requirements. There are some reports now of fentanyl, but there's just really a lot more room for research on this topic, and I'm really curious to see what comes out. Okay, so we'll have to keep our eye on that uh, and see what what new research uh, comes out, as you said. So when we talk about, uh, you know, we talked about this hyperalgesia concept, and you kind of said a little bit about it before. You know, there may be people out there listening who are thinking about going into pain medicine. Do you want to just give a little bit of a a deeper dive into what that is in case people are curious? Sure. So this is involving neuroplastic changes in the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system, causing sensitization of pro-nociceptive pathways. So ultimately, there's increases in the amount of pain the patient experiences. And what we really need to understand is it reduces the analgesic efficacy of subsequent applications of opioids. And this may remain latent for a long period of time. So you use your remifentanil infusion intraoperative for your crany or your ENT case or whatever, but then in the PACU and the surgeons later are chasing their tail trying to control this and they can't get the patient's pain under control. So we've really contributed to that and we should be aware of that. Okay, great. So that's really important. So we, let's kind of come back now to the uh, idea of this crisis that's existing kind of not, not just nationally, but, you know, affecting us, as you said, very specifically here in Maryland, but, but also across the country. What is the current political state? What, what's going on in terms of politics? And, you know, if people want to get involved, they want to do some lobbying or advocacy, what can they do? Yeah, so um, there's a lot going on. So in the state of Maryland itself, like we mentioned, in March 2017, Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, declared a state of emergency to combat this opioid epidemic. So there's a lot of new funding um, dedicated to addressing this crisis here. Um, And then in July 2017, opioid addiction was actually cited as the FDA's biggest crisis. CDC Director Thomas Frieden said, America is awash in opioids. Urgent action is critical. And, you know, we couldn't agree more. So in October 26th, actually, October 26th of 2017, President Donald Trump, I think, you know, most of us know, has declared the country's opioid crisis a public health emergency. So his big plan is to increase public awareness through aggressive anti opioid ad campaigns, hiring specialists to help tackle this, telemedicine services to treat people um, out in rural areas who are maybe suffering from addiction or opioid misuse, Um, a requirement that federally employed prescribers be trained in safe practices, a new federal initiative to help develop non-addictive painkillers, intensified efforts to block shipments of fentanyl, which we did see are really contributing to deaths into the United States, Um, And then to suspend a rule that currently prevents Medicaid from funding a lot of drug uh, rehabilitation facilities. So that's kind of what's going on locally and nationally in terms of this issue. Okay. And I imagine that this is only going to continue to get more attention. So for people out there who are interested in this, sounds like in Maryland and beyond, there's going to be funding. I'm sure people who are interested in doing research are going to be able to get some good funding to try to figure out better ways to approach this. And certainly we should be hearing more both about public policy and best practices for us as anesthesiologists and intensivists and pain physicians, what we can be doing to help combat this crisis and certainly to prevent it from getting worse. So, Shravani, what is really the bottom line? How would you sum up uh, what you want people to come away with? Yeah. So, Jed, we need new research to close these gaps in our understanding of opioids, which we've talked about. There are many. We need to make treatment accessible. 
um, and not stigmatized for addicts. Uh, we need to get better education for both patients and providers about opioids and safe prescribing. And, you know, we have to remember if, if lessons aren't learned from this experience with opioids, we may face more problems in the future with the use and misuse of other mind-altering substances, such as things maybe we already have, like medical marijuana or things that are going to be developed with uses propagated under various dubical medical indications. So we really have to evaluate literature and evaluate data before we um, start prescribing drugs. And, and um, finally, I just want to leave everybody with three questions. So despite all of our current efforts, the death tolls are increasing yearly. So are we doing enough as physicians? Um, is the federal government doing enough? Is what we've talked about really going to cut it? Is there other things that, you know, are there other things that need to happen? And are we holding pharmaceutical companies accountable for their marketing? Great questions. And I think everybody, uh, you know, can, could do well to think about them. And, of course, come to the website at ACRAC.com and leave a comment if you have thoughts on Chauvin's questions or anything else you've heard today. And we can all learn from the things that you have to say. Thank you so much, Chauvin, for coming on the show. This was great. Thanks, Jed. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a little different, not necessarily a board review topic, but an incredibly important topic in anesthesia and pain uh, and really for all physicians out there. So hopefully you enjoyed it, but go to the website, let me know. And uh, of course, you can ask questions, you can leave comments. If you want to get a hold of me directly, you can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you enjoy the show, take a minute, please go to iTunes, where you can leave a comment and a rating. It really helps other people find a show. When they're searching for an anesthesia-related podcast, it makes it come up quickly in their results. If you enjoy the show and you're interested in helping support the making of the show, you can consider becoming a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two. It makes a big difference and helps support making the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Don't forget to check out anesthesiologynews.com, see how their coverage of this episode and ACRAC is, see if you approve, and also, of course, check out all their other really interesting content. Uh, they really do it well over there. All right, that's it for today for the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Shravani Durbakala. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.